You're listening to an Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to our last session of Making Home. Um, I've helped co-curate this series of talks this week that have been on at the M Pavilion with um, Sophie Diring and Sam Donnelly here, and it's lovely to see Sam back in Melbourne. Yay! So nice. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we meet here on the lands of the Eastern Kulin Nations. They're the traditional custodians of this land on which the M Pavilion is situated, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, um, and I think it's particularly important when we talk about housing uh, that we um, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Today we'll be discussing how we can design for older women at risk of homelessness. Women over the age of 55 are the fastest growing cohort of homeless in Australia, and current research estimates that more than 400,000 women over the age of 45 are at risk of homelessness. This housing insecurity has been compounded by decades of rising house prices, which have driven up rental prices, insufficient funding and investment in public housing, increasing inequity, and the casualisation of the workforce, which is creating insecure and uncertain working conditions. In addition, we know that the pandemic is having a significant effect and impact, placing stress on, the, on an already stressed system. In Victoria, the big housing builders committed $5.3 billion to deliver 12,000 new dwellings. In this context, it's important that we get this right. Um, housing is expensive. Um, and that we build the homes that people need, ones that meet the requirements of the demographics that they cater for, which is why research-driven guidelines such as the design guide for older women's housing is so important, the research that Sam and Sophie have been doing. Um, so, my name's Tanya Davidge. I'm going to be facilitating the discussion this evening. We have some wonderful women here with us to talk. Um, let me introduce them. Going to start with Soph. Sophie Diring is the director of SCORE projects, a cross-disciplinary design studio. She's passionate about affordable housing, um, and she's an architect and a landscape architect. Her practice primarily designs and delivers social and affordable housing for those in the most need. Sophie complements her practice as a member of South Australia's Office for Design and Architecture Design Review Panel, and the Moreland Affordable House, and she's also on the Moreland Affordable Housing Committee. In addition, she's a sessional design lecturer at RMIT University, an author and a professional mentor. Beyond practice, Sophie presents at conferences, writes articles on the topic and is one of the co-conveners of this series. Sam Donnelly's um, architectural work focuses on social impact, uh, inclusion, gender-sensitive gender design and sustainable practices. She's worked for not-for-profit organisations and vulnerable communities on projects that respond to the need for spaces that provide a sense of dignity and care. 
Sam currently lectures at UTS in the School of Architecture. She's an active collaborator with the UTS Design Innovation Research Centre on projects that address violence through design. As a PhD researcher at Monash University, Sam's research considers the benefits of tailored accommodation for women and children leaving violence and the importance of safe, long-term accommodation for older women. And she's also one of the co-conveners of this series. Um, next, we have Helen. Helen's a retired woman in her 60s. Before retiring, Helen was a nurse in both civilian life and in the army. She's a divorced mother of four with many grandchildren. Her own mother is still alive and she advocates for her care um, for her, which means finding housing near her mother is an important consideration for Helen. She's happily settled in her home now and has been for the past two years. However, before that, she experienced housing insecurity. She lived in various places, including a two-man tent, a caravan and a flat where she could not be sure what was going to happen next or whether she would be safe. She enjoys gardening, reading, knitting and walking, especially with her dog, her friends and her family. She's actively involved in building a sense of community where she now lives. And Helen feels that if she can help others understand the situations faced by older women, she can also help them avoid the pitfalls she has encountered. We also have Jeanette Large. Jeanette's the CEO of Women's Property Initiatives. She has a Bachelor of Behavioural Science and a Graduate Diploma in Business Management. In 2015, she was a Telstra's Business Awards finalist. She's a certified housing professional with the Australasian Housing Institute and a member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Jeanette helps disadvantaged women regain independence by providing good quality, safe, appropriate, inclusionary and secure housing. Um, and finally, we have Amanda. Amanda is the CEO, Amanda Donohoe, sorry, um, is the CEO of Servants Community Housing, a not-for-profit that provides safe, secure, low-cost housing in Inner East Melbourne. In the 1990s, Amanda lived on site as a manager of a boarding house managed by Servants Community Housing. The experience changed her life and gave her unique insights into the lives of people with mental illness and substance issues, further igniting her passion for community housing. She then moved to the Northern Territory and worked in East Arnhem Land and Darwin for 15 years in the areas of community development and adult edu education. In 2010, Amanda returned to Melbourne to work with Servants Community Housing and has been actively involved in the growth of the organisation. Thank you. Um, so I thought today we would start with Sam uh, and Sam's going to give us a little bit of an overview of the design, uh, the design guidelines, which you can see that she has right here. Where can you, where can you get them, Sam? I've got a ladybird on as well, which is <laughs> colour coordinated. Um, so the design guide was um, launched. God, it's very loud. So we launched this design guide last Wednesday at the Victorian Pride Centre. Um, it's available online through the XYX lab uh, at Monash University, so you can get a, you can download a copy from there. There's also an associated report which we wrote that has all of the background um, statistics and background about um, Australian women and homelessness and the issues around policy that um, caused the problem in the first place. So, and that's available through the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation website. So they were the funders for the project. Um, Sophie and I first decided that um, there was a really interesting series of research questions around 
what we could do as architects and designers and researchers for older women who seem to be continuously falling through the gap in terms of thinking about what their housing needs were and how we could address the problem through design. So we, um, we proposed that we would do a series of post-occupancy evaluations of housing that Sophie had been involved with because um, we realised that Sophie had done a series of really interesting housing projects for older women that were diverse building types, but they hadn't been evaluated. So we, we set up a research um, project that involved interviewing women living in four different housing types. There was a, an apartment unit, a tiny house unit, rooming house, and a townhouse unit. So looking at the four different ha housing types, we then um, organised to interview seven different women. So every, there were eight women to begin with. Um, and all of the women had to be over the age of 45 and um, they needed to have lived in their, in their housing type for a few months so that they could give us feedback. Um, so we interviewed the housing providers first. So the, there were three stages to the research. The housing providers we interviewed first to find out how they allocated housing for women and, and what some of the issues were around the housing types for the women that um, were living in them. And there was a whole of really interesting feedback that came through that to do with um, how to organise where women lived together and how the community, were, the community of women was organised through the providers. Um, after, in the second stage, we interviewed the women living in the housing, and that was a two-stage process where we interviewed the women and asked them all sorts of qualitative questions about what their housing um, did for their sense of independence, their safety, their privacy, um, what worked for them, what they would improve if they could. And then we gave each of the participants a camera and asked them, we gave them a series of um, six prompt cards that had questions like, um, show us your favourite part of your housing or show us something that really frustrates you. Uh, so there were six different questions and they took a series of photographs um, with these cameras and, and the, the photographs became really important part of our um, research output because it, it gave us things that the women couldn't sometimes articulate in words and, and often it, it gave us a, a much kind of more complex sense of their living arrangements without us having to um, intrude on their privacy. And the third stage was inviting a series of experts um, on a discussion panel. So we, we put our research findings together and, and presented them to a group of experts that included women's health, uh, mental health, housing experts, designers, um, housing providers, and, and all of the participants um, also um, participated in the, in the expert panel. And we presented our findings and then asked them for their feedback and to check in that we'd actually got the, um, the story right. And it was a really interesting series of discussions about um, things like noise and how noise was something that needed to be designed into the housing in the first place. It wasn't something that you could retrofit very easily. Um, privacy was a very big issue. Gardening was really important to women, but they didn't necessarily want to have to be a gardener. They, they like to enjoy the garden, but we can't assume that women would you know, necessarily go out and get into the gardening, which is something that we often make a mistake about. Um, the housing didn't have to be huge, but and they didn't they didn't want to have a really big house to manage, but they they definitely did want to have enough space, extra space to do things like meditate. They they're really um, 
interested in making things. A lot of them could use power tools and they had their own power tools and they were making their own furniture, which was really, really interesting. Um, and they, they were about 45% of them were studying. So for, for us, it was a series of really surprising findings about how they were active in their lifestyle and their housing gave them the confidence to go out and study and get fit and, and kind of be confident women again. And, it, and they did, they actually told us that it was their housing without us prompting them, you know. So it was, for us, it was really, um, it gave us a sense that we're on the right track and I think one of the really kind of surprising things for me is how how funny the women were. They had a really... All of them had this fantastic sense of humour. You know, they'd been through really traumatic lives, but they still had a really fantastic way of looking at the world and, and attributing the way that they could um, move forward and look after their family and look after their pets um, to, their, to the way that they lived. So from... All of that research, we produced a design guide because we're conscious that there's people who are really interested in, in providing housing, but they're not exactly sure what's needed in terms of what women, what, what do women want? And often people will say, well, what does women's housing look like? So we, we thought it was a really important thing to, to be practical and, and to have practical um, design principles that we could provide as architects. Um, and then the the research report just backs up the design principles um, in a more kind of academic sense. So that was the background for the research. Um, I was going to throw it to Sophie now, but I'm actually going to do something slightly different. Um, we have three women here who either provide um, housing or live in the housing that Sam and Sophie used to, uh, for their research. So I thought maybe we would get each of them to actually talk about what that housing is like, where it is, uh, what their organisations provide um, or where they live in Helen's case. But I might, I'd like to start with Helen. Um, so Helen um, lives in um, women's housing. Who provides your housing, Helen? Uh, women's housing. Women's housing. Women. Limited. Yep. Um, and I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be living in your apartment. Um, and also, yeah, just describe it a little bit. All right. Firstly, I was asked to describe my journey to my house or my little house. It's, it's an apartment. Um, it's a long story, so I won't bore you to tears. Basically, uh, due to abuse and... Um, various stages, as has been said, I've lived in a three-man tent with a dog in the middle of May, June, July, or in a caravan at one stage just to get out of the way of the abuse. So finally, I put my foot down and said, enough's enough, before he got again. So that, in a nutshell, I came through um, Berwick Safe Futures, and because my mother is up in the eastern suburbs, um, I went through Edvos and then to Safe Steps and they found me a lovely little apartment, which is a one-bedroom apartment. It's got a patio. I've got my dog there and uh, I can visit my mother. I can visit one of my sons and my grandchildren can come over and play. Children upstairs come down and play too. <laughs> um, it's certainly better than a very old caravan, a caravan that had bed bugs 
and had a, a sway, sway back bed, <laughs> which I ended up putting planks underneath. I um, was placed in my unit, which was unfurnished, but I had my own furniture um, with the help of Safe Steps, a week before the first lockdown. It's a brand new building. None of the occupants have been in there earlier, I think, than uh, no, late November, the prior year. So we were all very new. Um, from there, um, there was no, unfortunately due to lockdown, there was no, uh, this is your neighbour or anything like that because we couldn't do that. So consequently, we met in the rubbish room or down in the car park or at the front door at the mailbox, whatever. We, we networked on our own and we made sure everybody was all right. And some of those posters around here will tell you what happened. Um, we found some people who didn't even speak English, let alone read it, were put in their unit without the instructions and we worked from there. So, I love my little unit. Do you want me to talk about it yet? Um, sure. Okay. My little unit, as I said, is a one-bedroom apartment. It has a, an L-shaped kitchen, not a galley. Um, it has a continental, I believe it's a con what they call it as a continental laundry. It's behind doors, <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. Uh, it's got a lovely big shower uh, and bathroom. I could arrange the furniture in there a wee bit better. Um, it's got a, a capable bed, bedroom and it's got a patio, which is all important. I like my patio. It's got a little garden bed out the back. With, it had natives. I don't know why everybody likes poa grass and lamandra, but still, lamandra. But still, it's got a tree in this tiny little patch too, <laughs> which is a bane of my next door neighbour's life at the moment. But you get the gist. I like it. There are drawbacks, but I like it because it's mine. It makes me happy. And people can come and visit, have cuppa, and enjoy. Would that do? That's lovely. Thank you. Um, Amanda, I was wondering if you... <laughs> Gorgeous. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what uh, Servants Community Housing do and then that, about the housing that um, was part of the research. Sure. Um, Servants Community Housing has four quite large properties, two in Kew, two in Hawthorne. Um, they're called rooming houses, which means that you have a lot of people living under one roof. The women's house that we um, have has six women. And if you can imagine um, a beautiful leafy street in Hawthorne and the large houses that are there, weatherboard, um, got their own driveway, lots of you know gum trees in the in the front street. Um, you wouldn't know our house from the one next door. In fact, they're exact replicas of each other. Um, our model's different to other rooming houses um, around. You've probably 
um, think rooming house and you think the Gatwick. Um, you could, if you look at our rooming house, you could probably think five-star Airbnb. Um, you can, you know, we've got all of our rooms beautifully furnished. So when women um, come in to stay, um, they're, it just looks gorgeous. So what we're trying to do is to give people a place to stay where um, they feel safe, um, where they can feel at home and where they feel that they're respected. The, um, if, you know, we're providing housing in Hawthorne, we don't have a lot of money. Um, housing in Hawthorne is really expensive. So we've got one house for six people because you can't, you know, we just can't afford anything else. The model's different because we have house managers on site. So we have someone that actually lives there um, and it, that person is a single lady and she is as much a part of the community as, as the women that live there. Um, so our guess, our focus with all of our houses is on building relationships and building community amongst the people that live there. The other houses have got men and we've got a couple of other houses. We've got one ex-nursing uh, home. It has 20 men and it has four women. So the women are in a little wing on their own. Um, look, I'll be absolutely honest, it's not ideal, but in the era that we live where there's not enough housing, um, if we can provide safe, comfortable housing for people. A lot of the people that we house have got mental health issues. Um, they need just a little bit extra care and attention. And if we can provide that, we, you know, with what we've got, that's what we're doing. Um, giving them that sense of safety, security, um, building relationships and, and helping them um, basically for most of them along their way and, and um, Hopefully one day, you know, they get their lucky number comes um, out of the um, public housing waiting list and they get a place of their own. But um, for some of them, they think that they'll be with us forever because they want to, but particularly for, you know, people that are perhaps capable um, you know, of cooking their own meals, we provide an evening meal, not in the women's house, but some of them, um, the other three houses, we have an evening meal, we provide breakfast, you know, the ultimate aim, for, obviously, for everyone is that they have friends and family and a community of their own and a place to live. The reality is that not everybody has that um, and we're trying to, to create it for them. Um, I could go on, but I'll stop. <laughs> I think it's amazing the um, women that I've met working in this space do incredible things um, to house people with, uh, in very, very difficult and tight circumstances. Um, I was wondering if, Jeanette, if you would actually talk a little bit about what WDPI does and um, I know you also work with a lot of different housing models, but maybe just talk a little bit about the one that ended up in the uh, study. Uh, thanks, Tanya. So, Women's Property Initiatives, we uh, develop and provide um, homes for women-headed households. We currently own 100 home homes, uh, 101 homes throughout metropolitan Melbourne, and they've been a mixture of uh, standalone three and four bedroom houses and uh, one and two bedroom apartments. We are moving into the regions. We're actually uh, developing um, three units up in Shepparton for young mums. We house women of all ages um, and all family compositions. So. 
obviously, if uh, we're housing someone in a three and four bedroom house, it's a woman with uh, a few children, um, but we have one and two bedroom apartments uh, that house um, single women, uh, as I said, of all ages. We also have just recently um, developed or finalised the construction of an older women's housing project that um, was really interesting that Sophie and I were co-presenting somewhere else just recently and the research that um, Sophie was talking about, about that had come out, it was almost like uh, we had known about all of that before we <laughs> developed the older women's housing, which was really good. <laughs> but um, as far as uh, the the properties that Sophie has um, designed for us, and I believe you interviewed women from both of them? Or, yeah, yeah. So um, we have uh, Sophie designed um, some townhouses in uh, Coburg that we have, and so they're two-storey townhouses. The importance of those were that they could house women of any age, but so if, if we wanted them to house uh, older women or women so they could age in place, um, attention was given to things such as uh, the staircase being able to be adapted so that a chairlift could be in there. There was a toilet that was downstairs because the bedroom and bathroom were upstairs, but, you know, the major living time was spent downstairs in the kitchen and so forth, so it was important that they didn't have to go up and downstairs to go to the toilet. There was garden space for each individual townhouse just to get some outdoor space. Uh, there was attention paid to storage, um, so storage outside and inside. Uh, very much attention paid to um, just, you know, the light and, and so forth to make it them as energy efficient as possible on the site that they were being de developed on. So it gave our organisation the flexibility to be able to house women of any age in those properties. It was a mixture of um, five one-bedroom and two two-bedroom. Clearly, the two-bedroom ones were going to be a woman with a child, but the, the five-bedroom ones could be a, a woman of, of any age and, as I said, um, could be able, would be able to age in place because women's property initiatives provides long-term housing. So once the women are in the, in the properties that we uh, own, they don't ever have to, to move on if they, if they don't want to. Um, it's their home, it's their permanent home. We think that's really important uh, for them to be able to really move on with their lives. And we have, you know, we have seen the impact on their emotional and physical health by, by providing that um, long-term secure housing. The uh, other um, homes that Sophie uh, um, designed for us were ones that were out in Pakenham. And they're actually um, two and three bedroom homes. I'm not sure how many older women are living in those homes. I don't think there's any. <laughs> I think they're women with children. So uh, they they are also beautifully beautifully designed. Um, uh, for from our point of view, and I know from Sophie's point of view, you know, taking in the neighbourhood character of of where these homes are are being built to make sure that they really fit in. Um, with the other homes in the area has always uh, been important. It's always been important to us that the homes are not identified as social housing uh, for the women that we're housing. Unfortunately, the majority have escaped family violence. Uh, so the fact that they're not identifiable within their communities is pretty important. The majority of the places that we um, build or acquire are actually 
what developers refer to as salt and pepper mix throughout new housing estates or within apartment buildings. So when we do have, you know, we've never had really high density but slightly higher density, it's, it is really important that they are beautifully designed and really fit in with the, with the neighbourhood that, um, that they're being built in. So is that enough, Tanya, for the That's moment? That's fantastic. Thank <laughs> you. Um, I was going to maybe ask Sophie now to talk a little bit about the banners um, and how they relate to the research and then we have some other questions that come off that. Thanks, Tanya. Um, so when we were finishing the design guide research, uh, Tanya had been approached by M Pavilion to maybe program some older women's housing um, events here. So um, Tanya invited Sam and I along. And because we'd met all these incredible women and interviewed these incredible women for our research, we had all these beautiful quotes. And um, the most important thing um, to come out of the housing well, our research, sorry, is to really get the voices of lived experience because when we do work with community housing providers like WPI and others, it is quite speculative. We know we're designing for women, but we don't know who the tenants will be because they don't know who they'll be when the property's ready. So to bring in the um, a lived experience voice was um, incredible. And like Sam said, um, so much sense of humour we'd captured in these interviews. So... For the week that we've been here, um, M Pavilion generously let us touch the pavilion, which is <laughs> not allowed. No, um, we convinced them though. In most cases, we yes, we um, got special, a special dispensation. Dispensation, beautiful. Um, so they're all lived experience um, quotes from the eight women that we uh, interviewed. Um, the little sketches around the place um, are the ones that Sam did that are also um, in the guide. Um, and then the objective was to set up more domestic rooms, I guess, trying to set up domestic spaces within this large public realm. Yeah. Yeah. And they're really beautiful. And I would highly recommend... Um, everybody take a look around and read the quotes. They're really, really powerful. Um, there are different quotes in the guide because obviously the guide's kind of reinforcing um, design issues, but the quotes on these panels um, uh, speak a lot about experience and um, it's really, really interesting to kind of get a better understanding of who we're designing for. What's really interesting to me, actually, about a lot of these quotes is some of them are incredibly practical. So I'm just going to read out a few that have, that have struck me. Women can never have enough storage, my dear. <laughs> In that lighting, you cannot see anything. You can't see what you're washing up at night. So lighting, obviously very important. Um, where can I keep my broom? Storage, right? We need storage. It needs to be at the right height as well is something I got from the guides. Um, but other quotes really talk about, um, about housing uh, kind of on an emotional level as home. So one of them says, Dee is never home because her place doesn't feel like home. Another one says, I've been sleeping here in my lounge room for the last three months and I don't know where to start. I don't know how to make this house a home. Um, and then I think we've got, have we got one of yours, Helen? I put artificial grass down because it was concrete. I have planted quite a few things. It means that the kids can come here, they can play. Somebody brought a wading pool down and we do gardening. I grow some veggies and I watch the spiders in their webs. Uh, 
And another one um, says, I like my bedroom, it's my favourite. It's a good size and it gets the sun. I find it quite a little haven and I feel comfortable and you can make it feel very homely. And so what reading all of these quotes when Sam, uh, Soph sent them through made me realise that, um, you know, housing has an emotional as well as a physical dimension to it. Um, and what I think I'm really, in, where I'm going with this very long-winded question is to say that housing's not just about providing four walls and a roof, but we also need to provide the possibility that these places become homes. And I was wondering if each of our speakers would speak a little bit to this idea of home, what makes a place a home beyond the physical building. Um, and shall we start with, would you like to start, Helen? Sure. Um, Microphone. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not used to this. <laughs> well, I'm not used to a microphone. <laughs> I think the... Uh, it's a home becomes a home when you feel comfortable in it, you feel happy in it, it's your safe place. You don't have to worry about somebody coming that you don't necessarily want there. You can shut them out. Also, it's a happy place for you, like that one about the waiting pool coming down. It was a really hot day and we had about four or five kids aged between uh, nine and 18 months upstairs and they were getting very hot. So one of them had a little waiting pool. We pulled it out, we put it on the lawn and they just ran around. Most of them didn't even have a bathing suit, but it was great because they could meet, they could feel cool, they could feel comfortable and I felt needed. And that's all part about a home and a community, isn't it? It's also about being able to be there for when someone needs you as much as someone being there for you. Um, it's being able to grow and forget about things, being able to work through things, having memories on your walls. Yeah. that all right? That's lovely. Very, very lovely. Um, Amanda, maybe? Um, um, I mean, I'm going to speak... I'm going to speak um, from what other, the residents have told me and um, you'll just have to trust that what I'm saying is true because although we do have someone here from... Um, that was in the women's house um, and I don't want to point at her in case she doesn't want to be... Um, known that she was uh, in one of our women's houses, but for the, um, with, as I said before, we've got one house that has 20 men and four women. And when people come, as Helen said, you know, they just want to feel safe. And for some, Helen might have her own, has her own unit. These people only have a room, um, but they feel safe in their room. And that, for some of them, is the first time they've ever felt safe, you know, or maybe, well, forever. And so they, they take that key and they're locking their door and then after a while, they start to thaw out and realise they don't have to lock their door. There's 24 people here and they can trust 23 of them and the managers. And I think that whole thing about safety is just number one, you have to feel safe in your home. Um, the other thing for, that for 
our residents is that quite often they've been isolated, they're on the street, they're marginalised, they're the people that you do walk by and you're not quite sure how to treat them. Do you look them in the eye? Do you put money in? You don't know, you know, you've got no idea. And um, so for some of those people, they've been ostracised and they, they come in and again, as I say, the facilities, you know, we try and keep it as clean and we try and, you know, make sure everything's maintained, but in the end, it's a tiny little room. But whether they're male or female, and quite often they're older, um, that they actually have a community and it becomes like a big family and that for them is their home. And that's part of the, you know, when they, if you talk about leaving, they're like, you know, they don't, they found their home and they don't want to go. And I think for the, um, for the over 55 women that have got a sense, you know, that are capable, they like it, they feel safe, they can get their lives back together and then they can start to think about moving on and uh, making their way in other places. Um, Jeanette, home, what does it mean to you and the women you house? Um, look, clearly people have said about the safety and the safety is absolutely vital and unfortunately the number of um, women that have to return to unsafe homes because we don't have enough housing uh, in this country to um, allow them to, you know, sometimes they take that big step and go to the homelessness service and try to um, get alternative accommodation only to find that the alternative accommodation doesn't exist and they have to return to an unsafe environment. Um, and there's many reasons why they do that, uh, uh, just to keep a, a roof over their heads, a roof over their children's heads. Uh, they can um, be in the position of potentially losing custody of their children if they chose to move to a place that uh, didn't, wasn't considered suitable um, or large enough for their children. So that safety aspect is absolutely the difference between a house and a roof over your head and a home. But other things uh, for, uh, that, that we've heard reported is, um, you know, when they feel comfortable enough to be able to invite other family members, uh, extended family members into their home, that some of them haven't been able to do that, whether that be for not feeling safe or whether it because they haven't had the room in the past, um, can really make it feel like a home for them. Yes, being able to, you know, put up their own photos or um, paintings or whatever, uh, the things that are important to them to have around them to make it to feel like their home. And it's also uh, the feedback that we've had is also the neighbourhood that they've been, that they, they feel within, safe within their neighbourhood. They feel safe to go outside as well as being in the home. They feel safe to walk the streets. Um, but uh, I think... You know, I, I think the others have said it, the safety is absolutely the most paramount way. But also, uh, and I think, Helen, you know, your quote there about the kids can come and use the pool. Well, you know, that the, for the older women, that their kids, their grandchildren can come and visit them. That makes it feel like their home. Their, their own children can come and visit them. Um, that, you know, they have space that our family or whoever can stay over. Um, those sorts of things really make it feel like home for them. It's, yeah. I think there were some great um, kind of design aspects in terms of that in the, uh, the guidebook. There's kind of things around personalisation that I thought were really beautiful. I just want, if um, you guys wanted to speak a little bit more about what you can do in terms of design, what you can allow for that makes um, a house a home. 
Right. It doesn't matter which one. <laughs> um, I think I think one of the most important aspects of design is to design for dignity. And I think dignity is something that doesn't have to be an expensive outlay, but to make somebody feel dignified and worthwhile, um, it, it's really important to give them a place where they can have a cup of tea and, and have rituals that make them feel like they belong in a place. And it's quite a complicated thing to, to do as a designer, but I think once you start to key into what people find dignified, I think that's when you become a, a good designer. It's not about the way that you create really expensive detailing. So it's been a huge learning curve for me to work that out. I think dignity is really interesting in the design guide. I was reading it today and I texted <laughs> Sam and Sophie. There's a, there's a part in it that says, don't design wardrobe mirrors with full-length full mirrors on the outside because no older woman wants to wake up looking at herself. <laughs> and I just laughed out loud. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Sophie, that's me interjecting. We are getting a little bit rained on. I'm hoping it's going to go away. Um, feel, free to move, feel free to move forward. Please edit that out in the podcast bit. <laughs> so, if, is there anything you want to add to my full-length mirror comment? Um, Put it on the back of the exactly. door. Not exactly. Yeah, you need a full-length mirror, but you don't need to wake up to, to <laughs> 2.4 metres width of um, mirrors. Uh, I think, yeah, personalisation came up a lot in the research and having family around even when they're not physically there, so all the family photos and trinkets and things. So maybe a simple thing that we can do is um, provide hooks in the walls, you know, rather than um, women having to ask or and then maybe not having that skill either. So that could be a simple thing that's provided in housing that you can easily hang stuff without dealing with 3M tape or... Yeah. Move in, if, if, in. if you can. There's a few more seats in here that might not be. The Bureau of Meteorology promised me that it wouldn't rain today. Damn them. What is it with weather, folk? Um, I'm just hoping it's your typical Melbourne little bit of dampness. At least Sam's not in Sydney where it's actually bucketing down right now. <laughs> She'd be underwater, so this is great for her. Um, <laughs> can edit that out as well. Um, I, um, I think this is actually a really interesting time maybe to talk about uh, social value. I was really interested, um, came across this on WPI's website and it states, a social return on investment evaluation found that for every $1 invested in WPI, $11 of social, actually a little bit more than 11 but $11 of social value is created. So I was just curious to unpack that a little bit. What does social value mean um, and how are social values linked to safe and secure housing? Um, so $11.07, Tanya. So. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty good return investment to me and you should all be telling Scott Morrison about it. So it, it, is, it is a social and economic value and there are actually... Um, qualified practitioners out there that do social returns on investment. So it was completely independent research that we had undertaken for the organisation. And we had it undertaken because uh, we wanted to know the value, um, but we're, because we have so many great supporters of our organisation, we wanted to be able to, to be able to feed that back to them, that um, you know, if they're providing uh, funding or they're providing their pro bono to us, that 
they could understand the value. So the social and economic value, there are, there, there's, these practitioners have a whole lot of proxies that they can use um, to measure that value. So, for example, um, absolutely the improved um, mental health of for the women, the improved physical health of the women, they then uh, can value that against less uh, visits to the hospitals, less visits to psychiatrists, less visits to psychologists. That might have been for the women and the children. The fact that the academic performance for the children improved, uh, many of the children ha had had um, teacher's aides accompanying them. They no longer needed teacher's aides accompanying them. So that was a saving. The women were often um, returning to work, might have been part-time work. So not only was their Centrelink benefit decreasing, but they were paying taxes. So all of these values are measured. Um, for us, the most important thing is the benefit to the women and children, but we know for um, government, for Department of Treasury and Finance, and good enough, fair enough for our philanthropists to be able to understand the value that they're providing. One of the biggest things for us was um, the outcome of it breaking that generational cycle of poverty, and that is fantastic. So we have uh, the children of um, many of the women that were housing have gone on to some sort of tertiary education, some to university. So they, they measure the fact that these um, children will not be accessing um, homelessness services in the future, and they put a value on that. The fact that they're in long-term housing is uh, uh, costs less than crisis accommodation or transitional accommodation. We have housed women exiting prison. Um, that good quality homes means that they're, you know, that the recidivism is decreased and they're not returning to prison. So all of these things are factored in to, to provide that value, um, Tanya. So, and you know, it's just fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it's really important, especially in the context of the um, Victorian inquiry into homelessness, the report that was released, was it last year or the year before? I'm losing my years with COVID. Um, but it did talk very much about how we are a system in crisis or we're reacting to crisis, but there's not enough, um, and how prevention and breaking those cycles of poverty um, is incredibly important because if we can stop people slipping into homelessness, then we can actually um, avert a lot of the costs that go with homelessness, and they're not only financial costs, they're also um, and if you look costs at, of well-being. if you look at research overseas, I mean, Finland is uh, one of the examples where they do housing first, and they've found out that they um, now have to have less investment in crisis accommodation because the long-term housing is being provided. And there, at one stage, there was an example between, I think it was... Um, the United Kingdom invested more in crisis accommodation and then they had to invest more in crisis accommodation because, and not, you know, because the long-term housing, they weren't investing in that. So the long-term housing, yes, it costs a lot up front. We know, look at Victoria, 5.3 billion, 12,000 homes, 50,000 people, households, not people, households on our Victorian housing register who are eligible for social housing. It's a huge, huge investment, but in the long run, it's worth it and it's cutting costs in other areas as far as health and so forth. And, you know, and yes, people paying taxes and anyway, no brainer really. Yeah. <laughs>
Absolutely. Um, I think one of the really interesting things about, and this is maybe my last question and then I will throw to everybody else. Um, one of the really interesting things for me in the urban, uh, sorry, in the design guide was the last section on urban location. Um, and it identifies, the section identifies that older women need to be connected with their communities, their uh, services, family and friends. And it's incredibly important. Um, and so location has a really big role to play uh, in this. I suppose my question is, where do we locate social and community housing? Um, and, uh, you know, what are the benefits of locating it everywhere? I think maybe if we start with Sam and Sophie, or one of you two. My turn to go first, yeah. <laughs> uh, it needs to be everywhere. Um, I think it's rubbish that, you know, we they talk about, particularly even our um, politicians talk about, what was it last week? We can't have social housing in Brighton because they'll, you know, they the kids won't be able to talk to the other kids. And they don't have uh, the right sneakers and iPhones. Oh, um, so it needs to be everywhere because um, people who need housing come from everywhere in their communities. Mm -hmm. Their um, immediate family and friends are everywhere. Um, but we obviously have a problem with, land availability and land cost around the place. So um, if uh, more affordable land is well connected to public transport, that's the first thing I think we need for women. Um, the women that we interviewed, um, some had their licences, but none of them have a, had a vehicle. So public transport was heavily um, relied upon. And then other community infrastructure like libraries, parks, supermarkets, Vets, that was a prob that's a problem with yours, isn't it? Yeah. You're not close to a vet. He's um, got a bit closer. Okay, cool. She moved. <laughs> um, I know that Amanda's uh, housing is located in Hawthorne, or at least some of it. I was wondering if you talk a little bit about um, what that means. Well, Hawthorne and Kew, a little bit like the Brighton scenario, um, we, every now and again you'll come across someone that says, you know, things like, there's no homelessness in Hawthorne um, or, you know, we don't need the housing here. I, I have had one, only one, thank, thankfully, in the um, 12 years that I've been back in Melbourne where someone in um, Canterbury told me that we, exactly that, that they don't fit in, our, our residents don't fit in. Um, I mean... Little, little does she know that um, many of the residents that live around our houses have no idea that our houses are actually community housing. Um, we have one massive, beautiful mansion and every um, January we run a jazz night and we invite the neighbours to come <laughs> onto the car park and they're like, oh, what's this place? I've always wondered what this place was because... Um, Fortunately, I mean, isn't that, um, you know, just testament to the fact that it's not the Gatwick, there's not people lounging around in the streets and, mind you, we're, you know, sometimes we do, but we're like, come on, come in off there. <laughs> um, you know, we've just got, we do, we recognise you've got to be a bit cautious with your neighbours, but very, very, very rarely do we have um, times when the neighbours are upset with any of our residents. Um, in fact, it's the reverse. If we... If there is someone that might be seemingly a little bit unwell on the street, the neighbours are ringing up. They're the first people to ring up. Oh, you know, we saw... And they know them by name. Generally, they know, you know, if um, 
the, a lot of them by name and they'll, they'll tell us that something's going um, perhaps a little bit awry with a person and it's, and, and it's out of absolute concern. So this, um, this mythology that people in Hawthorne and Kew don't want it, don't care um, and don't want homeless people in their area um, I think is a complete myth and and um, I was uh, I was on Glen Ferry Road seven o'clock the other day walking past a, someone that was just waking up from his sleep in front of the shop. I had a chat to him. Why are you here? I'm here because Hawthorne's safe. Um, so you know we're trying to get him into um, somewhere that's safe with a roof over his head now, but. You know, Hawthorne and Kew, all these sorts of beautiful areas. Why can't people that um, are on low income live there too? You know, that's... Um, and I think we've all had difficult neighbours. Um, <laughs> and not all of them are necessarily uh, on low incomes. Yes, exactly. Um, I've had some very entitled neighbours actually, but that's beside the point. Um, so, I think, you know, we're all a bit chilly and we all probably want to get up and move around and maybe have a bit of food and a bit of drink and try not to get too soggy. I think we might be able to find some good spots under here. But I wanted to know um, if anybody had any questions. Jeff, I think I have to hand you my microphone because we don't have enough. Thanks, Jan. Yeah. Um, wonderful discussion and thank you for sharing your stories. Um, I, I had two questions. One is around um, how is designing for older women different designing for older men, or is there a difference? That's the first question. And the second question is, I just want your, I'd like your comments on how well you think the big build is going. And if you, from your research, where, um, where do you think, what countries should the Victorian government be looking at to see housing for older women being done really well? Um, they're great questions. So that, for me, the the main difference in designing for older women was that older women are predominantly the carers. So they're the ones that have children coming over. I think one of Helen's great quotes was, "I'm an unpaid babysitter," and that's part of yeah. It's a it's a really important part of their um, lives is to be able to welcome people to come into their house. It's not necessarily stay for very long, but you know to be able to do that. <laughs> and, and I think, I th I think um, older women, I mean, we, we make assumptions that they're the, the homemakers and that they, have, ooh, that they have lots of... Oh, is it the home? Yeah. I'm from Sydney. It's pouring there. <laughs> <laughs> and they say Melbourne weather's bad. Yeah. <laughs> but th there's a real sense of... Um, all of the women that we interviewed had come from a history of trauma, so of violence and dealing with violence. So having a trauma-informed space that they could put away their things and have a super calm space to live in, I think that was a difference for me looking at the way that women would live in a space compared to men. And I know that men deal with trauma as well, but I think because all of the women that we interviewed had, had that experience things that they were saying about storage, when you dug a bit deeper, it was about having control over their, over their spaces. And so they're, they're nuanced differences. Can I add something? 
some older men, not all, but some older men don't necessarily cook. So you're not going to put them in a unit where they're required to cook for themselves. Um, their needs are different in that respect. Um, some older men cope very well with cooking and the increasing younger generation of men and women, all some women don't need to know how to cook when they're younger, but oh, some older men find that difficult. They find the idea of doing ironing difficult, so they need laundry facilities for them um, and cooking. But it's not necessarily so. It's not an absolute... Can I, can I um, just reiterate that that's a really, really important point that um, we house 95 people and every one of them has got a different story and they've got a different, um, you know, skill set and so one size doesn't fit, fit all and I've, I've, um, I've been reflecting on that question that you've asked about, you know, when I've, after I read the guidelines because... Um, I thought if we actually designed in the way that the guidelines um, are written, it would actually really benefit the men as well. So, um, thank you for, you know, basically doing universal guidelines. <laughs> because they want safety. A lot of them, as you said, they've had trauma and so what you've designed is a lovely, safe... It will produce a lovely, safe environment. So. My question is to Jeanette. Hi, my name is Catherine. Um, my interest is actually in the movability, that if you're 45 and you're at risk of homelessness at 45 and you go on to university, etc., then the transportability, so your home is your home. How do I, let's say it's me, not, a, not an uncommon story for me, but in fact, say it's me, at 45 I'm at risk you help me into a position where I feel more confident about myself. I go to university, I get a job. How do I give back? Do I stay in the same home and now start to pay you rent, for example, so that I can stay in the space and I can actually stay in a community and I can be a Brighton suburb holder because I'm now okay and I can join the clubs and so on? What is it that actually is your model that says, in fact, you want me to get into a position of being autonomous, etc. So we, we always we always charge rent. We charge thirty percent of household income, uh, and never never more than seventy five percent of market rent. So the women um, that we house, as I said, it's from our point of view, it's it's permanent housing. So if you um, did get into the position, you go to university. If you uh, got a, a really high income, <laughs> we could never charge you more than 75% of market rent, um, but we would charge you 75% of market rent, say, if, if, and if you were in um, a property in Brighton, well, that would be a reasonably um, significant rent. Uh, so, but we wouldn't be, we, we wouldn't insist that you move on. We have had um, some women, and that has, be, that has been the case, probably younger women, uh, they've gone to you know, they've been with us while they've been students, they've gone to university. More often than not, they may have partnered, you know, they've, that they've now got a well-paying job and they've partnered and, and they have chosen to move on. Um, so, 
Yeah. But but the other thing too, uh, while we house single women-headed households and um, that's the position they're in when they come into our housing, if they do repartner, we don't, ins we don't ask them to move on. They can uh, have their partner. We will take into account the, the partner's income. Um, the lease will all, with, for the property will always be in the woman's name because it's her house. We won't do joint leases. Uh, so if for whatever reason the relationship doesn't work, it's the woman's house and he has to move on. Is there any other questions? No? Okay. Well, maybe we should kind of wrap it up. Oops. That's lucky, lucky we all moved. Um, just like to finish, I think, on one last question and then some thank yous. Um, what's the one thing that we could do, everybody's kind of getting one thing, that would make the biggest difference in this space um, and to the women we house? Right here, right now, a roof. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it interesting that we've, we've got curtains, though? <laughs> and a bit of a roof. That's hilarious. <laughs> no, it's true. I don't know about the others. I think uh, for us, uh, myself in particular, in a one-bedroom place, I have a um, limited amount of room to put, as per the guideline, too like a snug or to put my grandchildren if they want to stay or my sister or whoever else um, could come over and stay. I mean, she's from Adelaide, so <laughs> she, she would find it very hard to stay with me at the moment. <laughs> so the... Nothing against Adelaide. Better, better apartment design guidelines could be expanded to look at different demographics of people who might need. Well, one bedroom is very limiting if you happen to have a visitor. Absolutely. I do put up camp stretches when my grandchildren come, but, yeah, it's very snug. <laughs> Jeanette? Tanya, it's, the, it's the one thing with our Older Women's Housing Project. We, we asked uh, that they be designed to be two bedrooms, the second bedroom is actually a very flexible space. So it can be used as a second bedroom for the grandchildren or a carer, but it can also be used as a study or a studio. Um, you know, you shouldn't have the assumption that all people need is one bedroom or that older women, that's all, that they don't do other activities and have other things in their lives. Um, so I think that's it's, it's a really important thing. And unfortunately when we look at um, what the government funding provides for housing, you're one person, you're one bedroom. Uh, so for community housing organisations, if we're putting in for funding from the government, that's, that's all they'll fund if it's a one-person you know, one household. But, um, yeah, the, that our Older Women's Housing Project wasn't government funded. It was philanthropically funded, much more generous. <laughs> so we need more philanthropists, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> or better government funding. Quite a few of them. All oh, right. <laughs> to, to oh, get that's it to wonderful. Add up. That's mm. that's wonderful. I never knew that they they 
actually gave um, their, you know, so, uh, divided. That's wonderful. I never knew that. I thought it was, would be all from the government. So th that's great news. Thanks very much. Um, I think it shows that a lot of people acting together can make a difference, um, which is really quite empowering, I think. Um, Amanda, one thing. Um, that if the political parties would sit down together and just forget that they're actually parties and because the issue's too big, um, you know, I've got two sister-in-laws that... Um, are over 55 and live in, in precarious housing and not necessarily in Victoria. So, you know, it's very, like, it's very personal and it and it's not just, Victoria's doing this amazing stuff, but we just need politicians to just get, get their act together and talk to each other and do something. I think that's part of what they experience. I mean, put it this way, if you haven't got experience in that area, what hope have you got of putting your head around it? Helen, are you thinking of running? I'll vote for you. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'd totally vote for you. I'm, I know I've got Because you're funny. No. No. No, thank you. <laughs> okay. Fine. That's fine. It's pretty hard. Um, Sam and Sophie. Anything? Um, I, think, I think they're really simple things like we should get... We should encourage developers to allocate house, you know, a whole level of each of their developments for older women and inclusion rezoning. Yeah, mandatory inclusion rezoning. Mandatory development. <laughs> yep. Mandatory. <laughs> yes. And we need a national housing strategy. We, we completely need a national housing strategy. On that note, um, no, no, not yet. Um, on that note. Um, it's obviously a really complex issue. Housing, whether you're an older woman at risk of homelessness, whether you're already homeless, um, regardless of where you are in that journey, it's an incredibly complex issue. It's very hard for people, I suppose, outside of this space to understand what they can do. So I would encourage you all to act. There are two places that you can go to look at this issue um, and to kind of, uh, I suppose, um, not only vote, but to actually kind of um, hold your politicians to account. So Everybody's Home is a fantastic website. They're running a federal election campaign at the moment and they have a list of things that you can do on their website. So I'd encourage you to go there. The other group is the Housing for the Aged Action Group. They also have a federal election uh, platform and I would encourage you to go there. Um, one of the things that they're doing on their website, which is quite interesting, is they're saying, email your local member and ask for a meeting. Um, I think Everybody's Home on their website has, um, has actually got a, a, a map that you can click on to find how many people in your local government electorate are under housing stress. And I did mine today and it's quite shocking. Um, so that's kind of a worthwhile thing to do. Um, to get informed. So I would say there's an election coming up. Let's get active. We can't, um, yeah, we need our politicians to talk together, um, which would be lovely, wouldn't it? Um, so, 
um, in a second, but I'll just let me just let me wrap this up. Okay, so um, thank you all for coming this evening. Uh, we've had a really wonderful week. Um, the M Pavilion will be putting out podcasts of the four talks that we've done, and I would like to thank everybody who's spoken. Um, it's been an amazing. Um, array of speakers. On Sunday, we had Dr. Kay Patterson, who's the Age Discrimination Commissioner, Joe White, Wait, who's a peer educator for Housing for the Aged Action Group, Fiona York, who's the Executive Officer of Housing for the Aged Action Group, and Dr. Kate Rayner from the University of Melbourne, chaired by the wonderful Justine Clark. Thank you for stepping in. Um, on Tuesday, a panel was organised by the City of Melbourne. We had Jennifer Koulas from Nightingale Housing, Karen Kakis from the ANZ Bank, Natasha Little from Women's Property Initiatives and Anna Deutsch from Wink Co-Housing. Um, on Wednesday night, Parla ran a salon. We had Eloise Atkinson, who's an architect, um, who's working on the Sharing with Friends co-housing project in Brisbane. And we had Charlotte Dillon, who's the general manager of community housing for the WCA. Um, and I'd like uh, you all to join me in thanking um, the women we have tonight, Jeanette Large, Sophie Dyring, Sam Donnelly, uh, Helen um, and um, Amanda Donohoe. Um, it's been an absolute honour for me to meet these women and to bring together um, some women who I hadn't met before in this space. Um, I find their passion is incredible and as I said before, they do a lot with very little uh, and they do it well and they do it cleverly. Um, and the world is a better place for them all. I'd like to make special thanks to Parler and the City of Melbourne and to the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation and the M Pavilion who have made this week possible, uh, in particular at the M Pavilion to Jen and Molly who have just made it really simple to sort all of this out. Um, and I'd like to invite you all to stay for drinks. Oh, and Paulie, excuse me. Um, stay for drinks. Uh, we have a tab. Please have a drink. It's, it's, wetter, it's wetter out there than it is in here. So you have to stay and we've got lots of food. Thank you very much. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.